0: But for the rest of you, you have a bit longer up here before we get to the Christmas story. Today we're finally going to conclude our series on Malachi. And I'll be honest, I've been eagerly anticipating this message because it's such an important message to understand. Uh, Although it is definitely going to be very different than probably anything you've ever heard before, and it's different than any message I've ever taught before. And so it's either going to be an eye-opening, amazing experience for you, or this is going to be a dumpster fire of a message. It's all an experiment. We're going to find out. And in me saying that, I know that some of you right now are like, let's jump in. I can't wait. And others of you are filled with dread, and you're still wondering, why won't he let us sing Christmas songs? Okay, So I'm building this tension inside of you and I know that. So with no further ado, we're going to jump into the book of Malachi. So if you haven't opened your Bibles there yet, I encourage you to do so. We're going to be looking at the last three verses of chapter 4 of the book of Malachi. And we're coming to the very end of this book. And because Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, and it was the last book written, we are looking at the concluding statements of the entire Old Testament. So last week, I already recapped the book of Malachi. And if you missed that message, I encourage you to go pick it up online. But where the beginning of Malachi chapter four left us is that it was talking about the day of the Lord that was going to come and the righteous were going to trample on the ashes of the wicked. And following that imagery, Malachi gives one more command and this imperative to the Jews. So reading from Malachi chapter four, beginning in verse four, remember, that's a a command word, remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. And that is the end of the Old Testament. Kind of an unusual conclusion. 39 books we have, and they describe, first the creation of all the heavens and the earth, and then God's special creation with humankind as he made Adam and Eve. He made Adam from the dust of the ground, and he breathed his own breath, his own spirit into them. But then we have what's called the fall. And that is where Adam and Eve sinned. And thereby they disobeyed God. They brought sin into the rest of the world so that chaos reigned. But God decided he was going to make a covenant with a special family. And so he made a promise to Abraham. And he said, Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. And that nation grew and they ended up in bondage in Egypt. And then we have the Exodus story where God took the Israelites out of Egypt and through the Red Sea on dry ground. While they were out on Mount Horeb, what was just described here, otherwise known as Mount Sinai, He gave them the law, the Ten Commandments, and everything that they were to follow and obey. He allowed them to go into the Promised Land, and then they wanted kings. A king to rule over them. So he gave them kings. And in the Bible we see this up and down story of good kings and bad kings. And kings who led them closer in relationship to God and those who led them further astray. And through all these kings God sent prophets. And these prophets warned them and challenged them and said stop doing these wicked things. They laid out blessings and curses based on how they responded to God's law. But ultimately, they didn't follow the law. And so, as we continue through these 39 books, we find out that the northern kingdom was conquered by the Assyrians, who took them and spread them all out and broke up all their cities. The southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin were taken into exile. And that's where, like, the book of Daniel is written from. They're in Babylon for 70 years, but they're allowed to return. And they get back to Jerusalem and they rebuild the wall and they rebuild the temple and they restart the sacrificial system. And those are the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And then Malachi comes a hundred years later. And he's like, yeah, but you guys are so half-hearted. And that's what we've seen as we've been going through the book of Malachi through this series. And all of it then ends here at the end of the prophet Malachi, again warning them to give God their whole hearts. And the final words to this people who have been through so many ups and downs is to be obedient to the law and to wait for a prophet like Elijah to arrive. Remember the law and I will send the prophet. And what's so interesting about this, and why it's such a fitting conclusion, these two verses, I know when I read it the first time, you guys are like, I don't get it. It seems so anticlimactic. But when we call it the Old Testament, Jesus called it the law and the prophets. When Jesus says, you know, remember the law and the prophets, or this fulfills the law and the prophets, he's referring to all 39 books. So to have the conclusion of the law and the prophets, point out, obey the law, and wait for the prophet, it's like it's self-referencing itself and saying, I understand, this is the bookend to what we now call the Old Testament. And then, nothing. The phone line went dead, and God went silent. In my Bible, there's a blank page. Between the end of Malachi and Matthew chapter 1. And it says New Testament. And that's all that's on that page. But that page covers over 400 years of history. 430 years to be exact. Where God did not send any more prophets. No more books of the Bible were written. It was 430 years of the Israelites waiting for God to make his next move. And a lot of things did happen, and it's covered in other books that are not considered part of our Protestant Bible. So I'm going to make a brief aside here. Some of you are going to like really nerd out with me, and you're going to love this. Others of you, I'll tell you when to check back in. So the Catholic Bible, the Catholic Bible and the Eastern Orthodox churches, so like the Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox churches, their Bible has 73 books, our Christian Protestant Bible has 66 books. There are seven different books in their Bible. Uh, it's typically referred to as the Apocrypha, but basically it's seven books that were written between the end of Malachi and when Jesus arrives on the scene. So the reason they have these books in their Bibles is because during this time, and I'm going to get a little more into the history, the Greeks came to reign like two, 300 BC and through 200 BC. And so what happens there is the Greeks reign. So they took the Hebrew Bible, which had basically been compiled, and they translated it into a Greek version of the Bible, a Bible for the people. And that is called the Septuagint. So if you ever hear about the Septuagint, or you're reading something and it refers to LXX, which is weird. I don't know why it's that. um, It is referring to the Greek version of the Old Testament. And that Septuagint had seven, or had 46 books in it. Ours has 39. It includes these seven extra books. That uh, The reason that we in our Protestant Bibles don't include them is because they weren't in Hebrew, they are in Greek. So that's what tells us we know that they were written after Malachi, after what we believe to be the close of the Old Testament. They also have some rather fantastical type, uh, unbelievable parts in the stories that don't seem to line up with how we would see God move in other parts of the Bible. There are some contradictions where they retell a story that's a different book of our Bible and it doesn't completely match up. In some cases, it feels like the author has an ulterior motive other than to describe the glory of God. And so, for these reasons, long time ago, long before us, you know, people got together and they built the canon for the Protestant Bible. And they chose to say, you know what? These books of the Bible seem to be an add-on and we're not going to include them in our Old Testament version with 39 books of the Bible. So they include first and second Maccabees, Judith, Tobeth, uh, wisdom of Solomon, Baruch, maybe you've heard some of these books, but that's what they are. So that is a very quick story of why the Catholic Bible is slightly different than like your NIV or even King James version of the Bible if you've got the Protestant version. So if you checked out, jump back in here right now, okay? Now we're going to get to the more important part of the message at hand, and that's, I want us to take a brief look at what happened on that blank page between Malachi 4 and Matthew chapter 1. So in 430 BC, that's basically when we believe Malachi was written, okay? And it was in this world Malachi wrote that the Persians were in control. The Persians were actually, remember the Babylonians conquered Israel or the tribe of Judah and Benjamin and they took them to Babylonia. Uh, But the Persians conquered the Babylonians and they were the ones who allowed the Israelites to go back to Jerusalem and to build the temple and to build the wall and to rebuild their city and to start their sacrificial system again. The Persians had no problem with the Jews practicing Judaism. Then in 333 BC, the Greeks came in and they defeated the Persians. And so this was a victory led by Alexander the Great. And it ushered in the era of the great Greek influence that has still shapes our world today. But it also shaped the Israelites in some significant ways. They still had freedom to worship and they had a relative peace at this time. They weren't facing wars and whatnot. But many Jews grew sick of waiting for gods to act. And they began to mix their religion with the worship of the Greek gods that was all around them. In 214 BC, the Seleucid dynasty, that was part of the Greek controlling families. There were various dynasties in different parts of the Greek region, Greek controlled regions. They began their reign through the area where Jerusalem was. But Antichus IV decided that he wasn't going to allow the Jews to continue to live freely and practice their religion. So he actually began to persecute them. He said, you cannot practice your religion. You cannot worship your gods. He destroyed their scriptures and he forced them to instead worship the Greek gods. And so these regulations went too far. And where the Jews were content being under first Persian reign and then the Greek reign, when this happened, they were no longer satisfied living under the reign of another nation who would not allow them to practice their religion freely. And so it led to what became the Maccabean Revolt in 167 B.C., And so the Maccabees were this group of Jews who were upset by their brethren, the other Jews who had begun to mix in with the uh, Greek culture and worship the other Greek gods. And they said, we can't have this. We need reform. And we need these Greek overlords out of here. And so uh, Judah Maccabee led this rebellion and they actually defeated the nation that was controlling around them. This led to the uh, period that was recorded in First Maccabees. So those First and Second Maccabees in the Apocrypha—they kind of describe this historically what happened—and it ushered in what is known now as the Hasmonean Dynasty, where the Jews basically had autonomy in their region again. They were able to do their thing, and they didn't have others. Uh, controlling over them. But if you know your history, the Greeks were eventually defeated by the Romans. And so they were warring and Greece was losing parts of their empire for many years. And then in 63 BC, the Romans got to Jerusalem and they ransacked Jerusalem. And this marked the turn in power from the Greeks to the Romans it led to many years of shakeup in Jerusalem, a lot of war around them. Eventually, Herod the Great, who is an Idumean, and that means a descendant of Esau. And now, does this bring you back to Malachi chapter 1? Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. The Romans put a descendant of Esau on the throne over Jerusalem. He's the one who is alive when Jesus was born. He's the one who wanted to destroy Jesus and had all the boys under two years of age murdered throughout all the region because Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. They have been at war ever since. Now, imagine living during any of these 430 years. Imagine what it would have been like to hear God's final words to your people be, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah. So you wonder, when is he coming? You ask yourself, why has God allowed us to sit under the rule of such wicked nations? Nations that worship other gods that don't even allow us to practice our own faith which is drawing the hearts of my fellow people into their messy religious systems. Maybe you lived after the Maccabean Maccabean revolt and you were thinking, finally God is standing up for us. Finally we have control and power. And then the Romans come in and they ransack the city and you lose it and you say, God, why? What are you doing? You understand how uncomfortable this period of waiting had to have been for the Jewish people. All their hopes continually dashed. It's a life that can get hopeless real fast if you take your eyes off of God and His proven faithfulness throughout history. So all these ups and downs and through it all, the Jews simply had to wait for God to speak again. Yes, they were writing some books, they were recording a little bit of what was going on, but God wasn't speaking. Interestingly, the entire history of the Jewish people of the nation of Israel is one of waiting. Think about it. Galatians 3 actually gives us the year. It says there were 430 years between when God made the promise to Abraham that he would be the father of a great nation, And when God gave the Israelites the law and he had them ready to go into the promised land, 430 years from the promise to head into the promised land. There were 40 years that they then had to take a sidetrack path and wander in the wilderness because of their disobedience and unwillingness to trust God. King David was anointed king 15 years before he became the king of Israel. The tribe of Judah waited 70 years in the captivity of the Babylonians, waiting to be freed and allowed to go home. Finally, the Israelites returned back to Jerusalem. They built the walls. They rebuilt the temple, only to be reconquered by the Greeks and the Romans. And again, for 430 years, they waited for a prophet like Elijah. And notice, that's the same amount of time from Malachi to where we get the story of Jesus as there was from the promise to the promised land. I don't think that's by coincidence. And I'm sure during that time, many people grumbled. Many stopped believing God was going to fulfill his promise. History tells us many began to worship the Greek and Roman gods of the culture all around them. And I understand the grumbling, I made a change this year, and we have not sung any Christmas songs yet. It's been three weeks. Three weeks, and some of you are such grumblers. You have this anticipation. You're like, Ryan, it's the Christmas season. But I did this on purpose. You know, you have a heart that wants to sing Christmas songs, and I have withheld that from you. And some of you are like, but why? The Israelites wanted God to act. He wanted, they wanted the Messiah to come. They wanted to have freedom. They wanted the shackles to be off. And they had to sit and wait week after week, year after year, century after century, in moments where it feels like, ah, we're getting there. Judah Maccabean, he's got us there. We've got power and control again only to have it taken away. We don't sing songs for a few weeks and we're going... (sighs) Waiting is hard. It builds tension inside of us. We can get anxious. Some people wait with like a hopeful, eager anticipation. Like, I can't wait. It's going to be awesome. Some people wait with a kind of a sense of dread. And they're like, oh, this is terrible. It's all in your attitude, right? And we see some Israelites were just holding on like God... I know that you're faithful. I know that you're coming back. Some were grumbling. God, why are you taking so long? This is the worst thing in the entire world. Okay? It's all your attitude in the waiting. But as we see next week, we're getting there. God remains faithful. His timeline might not have matched up with their expectations. His timeline does not match up with our expectations so often. But He made good on His promise and He sent A prophet like Elijah. We're going to see that next week. But today we sit and we wait for something completely different. We wait not for the first appearance of the coming Messiah, but we wait for his return. And just like the Israelites, we watch as wars and conquering kingdoms come and go for hundreds and hundreds of years now. We see these power struggles. We see things going on in the Middle East and we say, maybe this is the time. And we don't know. There might be something that ransacks them again and we find out this is not the time. And it's easy to become desperate. It's easy to lose your faith. It's easy to give up what we've been taught to believe and instead take on the beliefs of our culture around us. Our culture is teaching us things to believe, whether you understand that or not. What's on the news, what's in media, what's in movies, what's in music is teaching us a belief system. It may not be Greek and Roman gods that have names and images, But there is a belief system that the world is trying to teach us into which many Christians are grabbing hold of. And we're mixing our faith and belief in Jesus and our faith and belief in, well, just try hard and be a good person. And God's just a really nice guy who's going to take care of everybody and nobody will ever face consequences. But that's not the God of the Bible that we see. And so we have to sit. And we have to hope, hold on to this hope. And while we wait and we hold on to hope, we obey. We obey not necessarily the Old Testament law, but the law of love. Jesus showed us this law of love is to love God and love others. He says the first and greatest command is to love God, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And he ultimately says, and this sums up the law and the prophets. Right? The law and the prophets is all of the Old Testament. So Jesus says, do these two things. If it was right thing for the Jews to do during their lengthy wait for the Messiah, to obey all the law that was given to Moses on Mount Horeb, then that is exactly what we should be focused on today. Obeying. Unfortunately, I think too many Christians find themselves focusing on other things. They focus on the news. They focus on different prophecies in the Bible, what's going on in Israel, and they try to decipher exactly when Jesus is going to fulfill his promise to return. And that is interesting, but it also can leave you feeling very anxious. It can leave you feeling very worried. It can put you in a state of waiting that isn't eager anticipation to be with God, but a state of dread. And God doesn't want that for you. Here's the thing. when, When your focus is on the when of Jesus returning, it's not actually you can't change anything. However, if you choose, while we wait for Jesus to return, to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love others if you choose to share your hope that you have in Jesus with those you see struggling in this dark world, if you encourage your church family members when you see them going through tough situations, then you are making a difference. You are changing something for God's glory. You have the ability to make a difference in somebody else's life. You can't change God's timetable by worrying about when He comes. But you can change somebody's destination by focusing on sharing the good news that you have inside you. That's exactly what God wants each and every one of us to be doing while we wait for Jesus' return. The difference between our waiting also and that of the Israelite people waiting for the first coming of Jesus, is that we have this incredibly different gift that they didn't have. They truly waited in silence. They did not hear the voice of God for over 400 years. And yet as Christians, we believe that today we wait with the very person of God, the Holy Spirit, residing inside of us. Still speaking to us today. God We can never accuse God of going silent again because He lives and He dwells inside of us. He speaks to us. He leads us. He guides us. He challenges us and He convicts us by His Holy Spirit. Yeah, we don't have a single prophet who comes to the nation and speaks for God, but that doesn't mean that God's not speaking to us. He speaks directly to each and every one of you. If only you'll give Him your obedience your time, and your focus. So that is how Malachi, and by extension the entire Old Testament, comes to a conclusion. With a command, with a prophecy, and with a really long wait. And like the rest of the book, it continues to be so relevant to our lives as we follow the command and we wait in obedience, this command to love, The last book of our Bible is the book of Revelation. It's a book of prophecy telling us about what is to come. And now we have a really long wait filled with expectation that God is faithfully going to follow through on his promises. And yet, so here's my final encouragement then to all of you. My last word. Wait well. Wait in faith and in hope and in obedience. Wait in communion with the Holy Spirit inside of you. God's not done speaking to us. And we have a job to do while we wait for God to come and to fulfill and to restore and to bless us with this incredible new heaven and new earth that he promised all the way back in the beginning of scripture. So let's wait well. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray?